Isaiah 48, They Should Have Known Better is the title. <clears throat> Looking at uh, the scripture, what we've been going through, especially in these chapters in Isaiah, we consider uh, how many opportunities Israel as a nation has lost. We consider their suffering. And you have to say, you know, God takes his word very seriously, his warnings, his encouragements, his holiness. At the crucifixion of Christ, there was that element of Jewish leaders that shouted, his blood be on us and on our children. And as we look at matters through history, even to this day, uh, as unpleasant as it is, you don't have to look very far in the scripture to piece it all together. As a people, they're not walking with the God of the Bible, and they should have known better. And it's, it's not uh, a cheap shot, or it's, it's just the way it really is. The benefit to this is hopefully our better grasp and understanding of the serious business the Bible gives to us. If you look at Isaiah 48, verses 18 and 19, Oh, that you, would, oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then you, your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Uh, it just, it's just coincidence that we're on such a topic at such a time in current events. We can't shy away from what the scriptures are, are teaching us about these things. You look at verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by my name, of, by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh, and make mention of God the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. These are heavy indictments, and there's nothing uh, gleeful about this for us. This is a tragedy. What, what happened? What happened to people that have, should, have, they should have known better? Well, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the carnality of man. Adam and Christ face three aspects of temptation given to us in Scripture. Of course, the Lord faced more in the wilderness, but there are three that are highlighted. Adam yielded, and he brought all mankind into sin and to death. And Christ, of course, resisted, and that resulted in forgiveness and salvation, eternal life. We pick that up in 1 Corinthians 15, and so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And so here is man and his free will and his now fallen nature, carnal nature, a natural man is one without God. Of course, this proves, as this mentioned in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus incarnate was supernatural. To be able to face temptations and to not be stumbled by them. And so 1 John, he writes, the lust of the flesh. Well, there in Genesis 3, 
we see Eve looking at the tree, and it says that she thought the tree was good for food. And then in the wilderness, when Christ was tempted, Satan said, command these stones to become bread. And of course, the Lord answered, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which seems to be lost on a lot of Christians about the every word of God being lived by. But there's the flesh and the bread and the food. Then it says, John does in his first letter, the lust of the eyes. Well, it says this of Eve, as she looked at the tree, she shouldn't have been around in the first place. It was pleasant to the eyes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And then Christ in the wilderness, the devil showed him all the kingdoms that he could give to him. And of course... The devil wanted to be worshipped, and the Lord said, The Lord God alone is worshipped. And finally, in John chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that element of self-importance, self-exaltation to a fault. Well, back to Eden, a tree desirable to make one wise to make one better. It was all about you, Eve. And Adam went along with it. And then Satan in the wilderness to the Lord, throw yourself down from here. Show off what God has told you. Make it, make it about you and not God. So all of that to say this is the problem of fallen man. It just so happens the Jews are not an exception. They too are susceptible to these things. But the big problem is, is that they don't believe what they should believe as a people. And this is what we're going through here in, in Isaiah. If current events weren't as ugly as they were at this moment, we would I would still be saying these things. The most striking feature of this chapter is the severity of Isaiah's diagnosis on the people. His people, his beloved people. Paul loved them too, and they constantly try to kill him. They emerge in this chapter as hardened hypocrites. Now, this is not for a moment to suggest that churchgoers and professed Christians are somehow squeaky clean. But it is human fallen nature, and that's what we deal with when we open the Bible. Above all... They are Israel in name only. Verse 1. First, one of the first charges on them. Their loyalty. Mere lip service. Without truth. Without believability. They were stubborn in verse 4. Unsubmissive in verse 4. And shameless in verse 4. But verses 5-7 to seven tell us they were deaf to the Lord's word. Preferring false gods. All of these things we are susceptible to, every single one. In verse 8, God said they were treacherous and rebellious. Yes, that makes them dangerous. In verse 18, he says they threw, they threw away peace through disobedience, a consequence of reaping, unfortunately, what was sown. Ultimately, verse 20, there will be a faithful remnant. So Isaiah's message in this chapter goes beyond 
his present audience, and much of it still remains to be fulfilled. It is for his present audience, it is for the Jews that will be in exile 150 years later, and then it is for the church today, and even the tribulation believers. So, he explains their suffering and salvation, uh, and we know in this chapter he does, it covers a thousand, over a thousand years. 3,000 years almost. So now verse 1 here. This O house of Jacob. Who are called by the name of Israel. And have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. Who swear by the name of Yahweh. And make mention of the God of Israel. But not in truth or in righteousness. I've reread this verse. Because it is it's potent. It's powerful. Jacob, Israel and Judah. The use of the three titles point to a literal Israel, a reunited Israel, which will be reunited even though under Roman occupation when Christ comes. It is a united Israel right now. Jacob is who uh, Israel was before God put his hands on him. That could be said of all of us. I do believe that the name Israel means uh, governed by God, now controlled by God, under, or under the influence of God, in a relationship with God. And so he moves from, of course, the shyster to the man of God, and the outcome is praise of Judah. And Judah was the selected tribe, not only from which Messiah would come, but where the temple would be built primary place of worship. I say primary because a person can worship wherever they are in their hearts. Even as a Jew, you could pray to God. You know, the provisions were made to face towards the temple and pray, for example. They invoked these Jews that Isaiah is addressing. They invoked Yahweh's name as God without caring for what he said. He's God, but we don't listen to him. Ezekiel really pulls all this out. And Ezekiel, he, he too comes about 120 or so years later. And he's dealing with the same junk. Every generation gets its chance. Every generation should know better now that the Bible is so circulated. And it was circulated in the communities of the Jewish people. When he forbade, they imbibed like thirsty camels. Camels, you know, oh, he said, no, let's do it. Zephaniah, he will write, coming alongside of Isaiah, sort of like turning on Christ, a, a solid Christian radio program, and you hear one solid pastor preaching one thing, you turn to an, a, another pastor comes on after, and he's preaching just as much truth. And there you have these sort of tag team approaches from Isaiah, and now, as I'm going to read from Zephaniah, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of vow from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by Yahweh, but also swear by Milcom. That's like someone saying, um, I believe that, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. And Buddha, or whoever else. Isaiah 1, verse 15, tells us that 
This renders prayer powerless. This type of behavior. Violating the first commandment of the Ten Commandments renders your prayers powerless, God says. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And then if we see this happening, some people say, well, how God is so cruel. He won't help them. Well, how did we get there? Is that God's fault? You know, obedience is not a philosophy with God. Isaiah 59, Behold, Yahweh's hands aren't shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. I hear you, I see you, but your sins have separated you. What do you want me to do? Go ahead and bless you anyway? While you're trampling what I say to you? While you're disrespecting me? You're, doing, you're committing the abominations with glee in my face, and yet you still want to come to me and me act like, oh, that's no problem. That would make me a liar. Ezekiel 8, 18, Therefore I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Prayer is ended. What I do like is that in preparing for this, I glance back at my old notes from last time we did Isaiah and say, hey, you know, these are the verses I used then. I'm using them now. Again, uh, not influenced Though mindful of current events, horrific events of the Satansteins uh, that are just sheer evil. There are no, there's no such thing as, a, there are no more Philistines. These are not, these Palestinians, which is an alteration of Philistines, uh, they're Arabs. There are no more Philistines, they have no claim on that land. But they said, you know what, if we can just, you know, align ourselves with the ancient Philistines, the land should be ours, we have the deed. No, it doesn't work that way. You sh- it, it, the way. This is the way it works. Like it or not, the one with the biggest guns wins. And it's, uh, that's the way it is throughout all history. And if you wanted to go around starting telling everybody to give back their land, where would everybody go? I mean, <laughs> this is the craziest thing that these highly educated people um, just conveniently dismiss or evil with evil they dismiss. Anyway... Israel's greatest sin was not simply abandoning Yahweh. It wasn't that easy. Oh, no, it wasn't that. We're just going to ditch Yahweh. We're going to keep him. We're just going to add some other stuff. The epitome of leaven. Their major sin was elevating to the status of worship other people's gods. And so when you hear some Christian author tell you that, well, the other religions aren't that wrong, it's the same thing. It's idolatry. And we've had them. We've had quite a few of them. There'll be more. Even though this kind of behavior was explicitly forbidden, they did it anyway. The golden calves set up by Jehu when the kingdom split to north and south, there in 1 Kings 12, likely shrines, golden calves, to Yahweh. Yeah, but he forbade this stuff. You would think sometimes you hit somebody with three or four verses. You would think sometimes they would say, wow, I was wrong. Well, they do sometimes. But many times they don't. They just keep going. Oh, yeah, well, what about? What about what? The verse just shut you down. You would think you'd say to somebody who prays to Mary, this is forbidden throughout Scripture. Here's the, here are the verses. You would think they would say, huh, there they are. I'm going to stop doing that. (laughs) Double down. 
Oh, yeah, well. God says in Deuteronomy 7, he hates these things. They are an abomination. Easy stops in Scripture to just cross-reference. 1 Kings 11, 2 Kings 23. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the good kings, they pulverize these statues. Yeah, Yahweh is God, but who cares what he says? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Who cares what the Bible says? Uh, why come to a Bible study if, if there's no application to life? Religious blending in ancient Israel again, is identical to professed Christians viewing non even anti-Christian religions as legit. They're not. And we're hated for that. Verse 2, For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Would you accuse Isaiah of being an anti-Semite? Of course not. He's a Jewish prophet. He is pro-Yahweh. That's what he is. Uh, it's like Joshua, you know, when Joshua saw the angel of the Lord, and he asked the angel of the Lord, whose side are you on? You, are you with us or the enemy? And he says, no, with Yahweh. That settles it right away, doesn't it? Because you didn't get the choice to join the side of God or not. For they call themselves after the holy city. Jeremiah will deal with that. You know, they're going to the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these. And Jeremiah said, watch what happens to that temple of the Lord. And, of course, they tried to slap him with being a treasonous. They tried to kill him more than once. Terror, tough ministry for Jeremiah. Anyway, they lean on the God of, the, of Israel. Uh, so, Jerusalem, as the place of holiness, you would think would obligate them to honor the God who established his temple there. Well, after all, the pagans do. They honor their gods. The time we get to the New Testament, we see Paul dealing with the Ephesians in the Temple of Diana and how defensive of that temple they were. Why weren't the Jews defensive of their scripture, the, the guilty Jews? Of course, certainly, there's always righteous people wherever God's word is. So, Yahweh demanding submission and, and not this just eternal stuff. Jeremiah 7, 4 do not trust in these lying words. <laughs> That's what he says. Saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They're lying words because of the heart of the people speaking them. We learn from God's dealing with his people in both Old and New Testament. To not judge God by his people. Consider the first, the first consider the church in Corinth. If you judge Jesus by the way that many of those Christians were behaving, you wouldn't become a Christian. And that's the problem of the bad testimony. So people will do that. So we learn, again, from God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament, with his people in the New Testament, to not judge God by his people. Unless it's positive, of course. And that just makes sense. Here it says that they, they wanted to lean on the God of Israel, like a rabbit's foot. When they need it, verse 3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. This is the argument of prophecy uh, predicted and fulfilled. It was previously used by Isaiah 
against the heathen. And here now, he's using it on the covenant people. He's saying, doesn't prophecy mean something to you? If you've seen it spoken, you know it's been spoken, you see it fulfilled, doesn't it mean something? Well, the defiant skeptics are waiting. Isaiah is going to call them out beginning in this verse through verse 8. They had no excuse. Moses, uh, well, not Moses, the Lord, when he gave a parable of a man in hell, that man wanted someone, Lazarus by name, to go back and tell his brothers about this place. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Let them read the scripture and act upon it if they want to stay out of hell. That's the solution. And too many Christians go to church and the Bible's just not enough for them. They have to have something else. The Bible divides neatly into three parts. If you just, you know, you look at the scripture, if, you, if you're familiar enough with it, you see there's instruction, there's history, and there's prophecy. And prophecy is about 26%, almost 27% of our scripture using this formula. According to one source, there are 1,239 Old Testament prophecies, give or take. 578 New Testament prophecies, totaling 1,817. And they are in 8,352 verses, since there are 31,124 verses in our scripture. Again, give or take, some of the translators move a verse a little bit here or there. Nothing major, but anyway, since you take that number, 31,124 verses, uh, you come up with, if with the 8,352 verses dealing with prophecy, at 26.8% of the Bible is prophecy. You're most welcome to go home and verify this. (laughs) We're going to take you some time. Because it's going to take a little skill to just to recognize, hey, that's a prophecy. Uh, With some of them. Some of them are just right out. They glare right out at you. But some of the others are a little bit more subtle. Verse, so I'm saying prophecy is a big deal. And God is bringing that up to his people. Uh, You know, Abraham divided his forces in three when he retrieved Lot from... Ketalomar and his confederation, when he came and took all of the people of Sodom away captive, and when Abraham finally pounced, he divided his forces in threes. And so there you have the scriptures. You divide it up in three on that approach, instruction, history, and prophecy. Verse 4, because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow bronze. God, I knew it. You're stubborn, you're defiant, and you're shameless. All rolled into one. And you should not have been. These produce a violent religion against truth. when When you have a religion you're passionate about, but you're stubborn, you're defiant, and you're shameless because you're not with God, you get very nasty. Uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He said, You don't have a relationship with God. That's what that uncircumcised statement is about, in heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> You're talking about one of the greatest, uh, just, uh, I don't know, comebacks or sermons, death row sermons. This is at the top. Uh, you're not going to top. Well, I should say it that way. You're not going to top this. Which of the which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You should have known better. That's what Stephen said. I'll circle back to this when we get to verse 8. We'll hit it again. Verse 5 now. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them. And my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. <laughs> well, Israel, the nation, was born into God's word. Moses told the story in 100 uh, 124,911 words. That's the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote it down and told them their history. And they were a part of it. And many of those that were named in the Bible by Moses at the time died in rebellion to, against God. All of them died in the wilderness that didn't believe, which was almost all of them. But you had others like Dathan. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. So there they were, surrounded with this spiritual feature from their very beginning. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all experienced the miraculous. All had something to say about Yahweh. He says here in verse 5, Lest you should say, my idol has done them. And he goes on to give the variations of their carved images and such. Defiant hearts routinely, routinely attempt to disprove prophecy. Second Peter chapter 3, where is the promise of his coming? You know, they always got something to say. You show them a prophecy, your Bible called it, and they try to just come up with some lame reason not to believe it. They do this with, with science also. Well, junk, junk science on their end. Like people who chase the paranormal but rule out God. How do you do that? How do you look into having a seance to talk with the dead? Well, where are the dead? Is there anybody over them? Who caused death? You've just you opened up so many questions that the Bible is ready to answer. Evolutionists that deny God, that won't say, yeah, he did this. And of course, you know, just so many, even apes know evolution is not possible. And yet, they march on with this without shame, with a hard head, and they just keep going forward. They deliberately lie. They'll believe in anything but the Bible. This is true. And some people would, would kill me for saying this, or anybody for saying this. First Corinthians 12, you know that you were Gentiles? Listen to what Paul says. Carried away to these dumb idols. Those used to be your God. And it's true. What could they say? All of us could say, yeah, I remember when I wasn't a Christian. Well, most of us, some of you, have fortunately been born in a Christian home and have not deviated and have come into that real relationship with Christ, even at a young age. Romans 1, For since the creation of this world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's to the Gentiles. 
They don't have, they don't have Moses to read. They've got other things to look at. They cannot deny that there is a real God. Verse 6, you have heard, Isaiah 48, verse 6, you have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. So God says, I gave you the prophets. Did you avail yourselves of their rich predictions? Now the language of this verse looks beyond Isaiah's time, Isaiah's Israel, and it just moves all the way to a time that still has not yet happened. He's, and it's going to start lighting up from chapter 49 on. We're going to get more Messiah and, and more of the Messianic kingdom. And he's starting right here. This is sort of like um, uh, the turning point uh, in his prophecies. I mean, he's had some of his uh, prof- uh, Messiah in it, but now he's, he's going to really start changing it. And you've got to be a little bit familiar with the scriptures to identify a lot of what's going, going on. Uh, the, these prophecies of Messiah's first and second coming, Israel's restoration, ultimate restoration, literal Israel as a people. Uh, he's he's going to deal with it. It's going to expand. Um, as I mentioned, his contemporaries, the Jews reading this during the Babylonian captivity, they're going to get something from this. We are getting something from this. All the generations of believers have gotten something from what Isaiah is now beginning to do. Ancient Babylon becomes apocalyptic Babylon. That world system, that's what that apocalyptic Babylon is. The global system under Antichrist. Uh, He'll have problems too. He's going to have a big one when Christ comes back. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create the new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. See, that we're looking way up in Isaiah now, and there he is giving us information about what's coming. He's going to be moving away from rebuking uh, so much and just pouring it out. Verse 7, They are created now, and not from the beginning. This is the things that he's going to tell them. And before this day, you have not heard them. Lest you should say, oh, of course I knew them. Bunch of know-it-alls, right? Uh, you know, a little smart Alex. Cain was a smart Alex. Cain, where's your brother that you just killed? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, at that point, you want God to give him the back of his hand. But, of course, the Lord works right on trying to offer Cain a solution. Cain, you've got to fix this. Never took it. Uh, but anyway, here God is saying, I'm going to tell you some new things. God says, no way you could know some of these things oh, and these things that I'm going to reveal. There's no way you could have known them. I've been holding them back. But now I'm going to start revealing them. There was no way they could have known that Cyrus, a Gentile Persian king, would be the one God would use to get them back, the, the exiles back to Babylon. There's no way they would know that Messiah would suffer unless they really understood Genesis 3. We'll come to that shortly. Which they did not. Uh, the, the prophecy is not uh, easy reading. It's a lot of work and charts and review. and It's, 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 it's fluid. It's constant. There's no way that uh, this Messiah would be a, face a sacrificial death 
for sinners unless God told them. There is no way mankind can know Israel's future without the Bible. You're only able to stand up and say, we see what's happening, but they're not going anywhere. Israel will be here forever. There'll be a lot of suffering, and I can tell you why and and how it's going to work, because of the Bible. And nobody else has got that. And we're looking, we got the proof. We got the proof. What other people have been taken out of their land for 2,000 years, retained their ethnicity, their religion, their language, their culture, and they're brought back into their land. And the size of New Jersey, no one on earth can get them out. It's incredible. There's nothing like this. That alone should make an unbeliever say, the Bible is God's word, and I will line up with it. But no, we have, this is why when it comes time for judgment, God says, there's no more mercy left. You've had a lifetime of opportunities, and you spent it on defying me. Anyway, the Old and New Testament, both of the more short of prophecy, and siding against them may damn your soul. And the world's hatred of Israel is unexplained without God, without his word. And the face of hell is not going to be able to uh, have joy in the, in the end. Israel is, is not... Now let me rephrase this. The nation Israel will face hell and prevail as, as a nation. They're not going anywhere. Now verse 7 that we're in now indicates that God had never revealed certain features to them before. And he's revealing it to them now with the expectation that they're going to say, yep, my idol's never done anything like this because it's fake. So I'm going to abandon my idol and I'm going to worship the God of the Jews. You would think there would be even some uh, patriotism involved, the love of their nation. Nope, didn't happen. Verse 8, surely you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. You know, you've been born, you're born a sinner, is what he's saying. We all are. We're born in iniquity, David wrote. Uh, And so we're all sinners. The cutest little baby has every code for sin built into them. And given time, they might not sin, they will sin. It's guaranteed. Uh, you just say, how do these things happen? How does something so cute and innocent and harmless become so defiled? Well, when, they ch- when you change their diapers and pampers, they're warning you. <laughs> they're warning you. This life is not what it should be. I thought that was kind of funny at the moment. I, some of you are like, that's not funny. But I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, to me it's true. Anyway, <laughs> 1 Samuel Chapter 15, Saul, Saul wanted to hide behind religion. He wanted to do what he wanted to do and use religion as a smokescreen. And, of course, the great prophet Samuel busted him. And so we're here in verse 8 where Isaiah says, Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. And, but they were doing the religious thing. Well, Samuel says this, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed... Then the fat of rams. God would rather you bring no sacrifices to the temple if he could just get you to obey. 
But that's not it. And many churchgoers have perfected disobedience in the same way. Um, Overly religious people, I said I'd come back to this in verse 8, do not make room for truth. They make room for ritual, they make room for their religion, but they do not make room for truth. Jesus was not allowed to apply scripture to the guilty people. He had their scripture, he tells them, he points it out, and he tried to kill them. Here's, here's an example. This is in Nazareth, his hometown. When he goes into the temple, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he says, I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. We pause there. Jesus is saying, There were plenty of lepers in Israel, but because there were no believers, God sent his prophets to do healings amongst unbelievers. It was true. It was in their Bible. And they hated him for pointing it out because they were guilty. And then it goes on to say, after they were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then Luke says, but he just walked away. <laughs> that was just a miracle. That's another miracle. That's a hidden miracle. That's one that you might miss. But she said, how else do you do that? Unless it's some extraordinary event taking place. So there you have from Luke, Jesus simply telling the truth to the guilty people, and they would have none of it in the name of their religion. All they had to say was, you're right. You're right. And, and But no, that's not what happened. Anyway, verse 9, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Incidentally, in the last verse reading about Luke, of course we have this today, we have people who are not interested in the truth. They just want what they want, uh, and it's just as evil. But here in verse 9, his promise to protect Israel, guess what? It will not be ruined by Israel. That's what he's saying. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. I am not going to put this under your control. He knew what he was doing the whole time. Verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, as, uh, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Well, refinery is a process that purges unwanted substances. And the secret behind all of God's dealings with Israel is just that, purging them. Looking back at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. The stuff you've added in. Okay, so what would happen... What would have happened if God did not do these periodic purges to Israel? I think they would have completely collapsed. 
That's why they are purges. They're not perfect in that they do not wipe out everything. Uh, but they, they remove a large amount of resistance uh, from his people over the, the millennial millennium. But not as silver. Well, metaphor is eclipsed by reality. A metaphor goes but so far. There's a bigger thing behind it. Malachi, some 300 years later, he rings in on this. He says, he will sit as a refiner and purify, purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to Yahweh an offering in righteousness. And so 300 years later, other generations are in need of purging. And Malachi is even looking further, further on into the future. So why were they tested? To be purified. Why? Because they have a future work. What was that work? To bring about Messiah. Is that the end of it? No. What is their future work? To have a place ready for Messiah to return. And if there were no Jewish people, there would be no... Mount of Olives for Jesus to come back in the fashion that he said he's coming back for his people. But they are there, and there's not a thing hell can do about it. But there's so much human suffering in the middle of it. And it all comes back to, for the Jewish people, they should have known better. And even you look at church history and you say, they should have known better. I don't ever want to act like the Jews are the only bad guys on the scene when it comes to God's word. Because we are equal. At the least, we're equal with, uh, I mean, look at Martin Luther saying, you know, being frustrated with the Jews because they wouldn't become believers, and then he's going to write them off and, and say that there's no such thing as literal Israel. It's just crazy. Martin, what were you thinking? Anyhow, uh, so as fierce as the Jew has been against Yahweh's will, imagine if he was not ever disciplined for it. And their idolatry... Uh, was not the result of being weak, but attracted to sin. Is that not always the case? Second Timothy chapter 4, speaking to the church. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They're shop for a church that's saying what they wanted to say, not dealing with their sin. Look at, look at the prosperity teachers, which is nothing prosperous about it whatsoever. Their, their positive confessions are useless in the face of persecution, of sickness, of truth. It, it, the only use that their positive confessions serve is Satan fueling their greed. Uh, you, who, who are we to make a positive confession to get God to do what we want him to do? Even the Son of God said, not my will be done, but your will be done. There's no positive confession in Gethsemane. Uh, this is madness that's gobbled up by greedy people who feel like God wants me to be rich. And I'm going to do whatever I can do so he can make me rich. And this is uh, well received in many circles. Uh, it's, uh, it's a tragedy. Uh, you know, how about we just learn to pick up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him? How about that? Uh, that's more effective against the indulgences of the flesh. Paul said that. He said all these religious rituals and stuff, they are useless in the face, in the, uh, against, in the indulgences of the flesh. Against the indulgences of the flesh. That's second. I think it's Colossians chapter 2, last verse. Anyway, uh, in the furnace of affliction. Now, classically in the scripture, Egypt is that furnace of affliction, or was. But this time it's the Babylonian experience. David wrote of himself, and I believe David wrote Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is like the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Who wrote it? 
Well, there's nobody that could have did Hebrews except Paul. There's just nobody's going to come on the scene. Yeah, I was hiding, <laughs> but now I'm here. Paul wrote Hebrews, and when you get to heaven, you'll say, well, you know, you're right. And I'll say, I know, but I'm humble, and please leave me alone. Uh, Psalm 119. Israel, the, only, the man after God's own heart wrote that psalm. And he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's just so articulate. Uh, it's expressing what we all agree, agree with. And that's why we have, sing so many songs with his, David's words. Anyway, the shaping of the nation Israel through intense affliction. And let's just consider some of it. From the beginning, there was Pharaoh's Egypt, that the Jews were enslaved. Genocide began to take place there. There were the invaders in the book of Judges, the Philistines in the book of Sam, books of Samuel, the Assyrians in the books of Kings, the Babylonians in Jeremiah, the Agites in Esther, the Arabs in Nehemiah. And that's just some of the places in the Old Testament. My point is the furnace of affliction has been a part of their history. And it all comes back to they should have known better and should have acted on what they knew. And they did not as a people. And the individuals certainly did get it right, which takes away any, um, just blocks out any racial slurs that anyone might want to hurl. You'd be a fool to hurl racial slurs at the Jews especially, but you'd be doing Satan work to hurl them at anybody. Granted, there are some cultures that are just not, you know, pleasant to some of us, but that's no grounds to have the people in contempt. Low class is low class, regardless of how wealthy, rich, race, or culture. Somebody who's inconsiderate and mean is inconsiderate and mean and Really nothing to do with their ethnicity. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Well, we've come across this before. It's being repeated because it needs to be said again. God will keep his promise to preserve Israel in spite of their behavior. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, for I am Yahweh, I do not change, therefore... You are not consumed, O oh, sons of Jacob. The only reason why you're still around is because of me, not because you earned it. So let's not get a big head about yourselves. Satan will not be allowed to overturn God's covenant, his commitment. Even though he is thrown and is throwing everything he has at Israel. But wait a minute. Satan threw everything he had at Job, at Joseph at Jeremiah, at Paul, and they survived. Verse 8, verse 12, sorry. <laughs> Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. You, you hear God appealing to them? He's still appealing to them. My called, I'm, I'm, you know, He's reaching out, verse 13. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I, called, when I call to them, they stand up together. And so God is saying, I am not going to stop supporting you, and I want you to stop supposing there is another God. There is not. There is only me. 
And I have the power to move mountains and to do whatever I want to do with my creation. Verse 14, all of you assemble yourselves in here, who among them has declared these things. Yahweh loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Well, we've got a problem with this verse. There's a lot here. Uh, the big thing is, I don't want to get ahead of myself, is this Cyrus, is this Cyrus or not? But let's take it from the beginning of verse 14. All of you assemble. So God says, gather your scholars, your prognosticators, your astrologers, whoever you want them, bring them here. And you tell me if anybody's like me. And you would think their repeated inability to match God would expose the fake gods. He says, Yahweh loves him. Is this Cyrus? Well, God loved what Cyrus was to do for him. Now, there are two schools. There are many good Bible commentators that will say, this is Cyrus. But then there are others also, which I am in that, this other camp, that says, I don't think this is Cyrus. Um, it, it, it's, it won't affect your salvation one way or the other. But if you're just reading the scripture and something doesn't sit right with you, it's pro it probably is an indication that your first assumption is not right. And so there's an alarm going off saying, uh, there's something not right with this. It, not with the scripture. The scripture's right. It's our interpretation of what it is saying. The shock value of this statement about a Gentile, uh, pagan Gentile being loved by God would have certainly had a value from, to shock the Jews. But I don't think that's, that's saying. Uh, Yahweh was not ever pleased with Cyrus' moral character or, or his, his religion. I'll leave it at that. Because he seems to have been a decent person as people go. Um, but beginning at verse 6, as I mentioned, that was the turning point. And Isaiah began to write new things. And I don't think this is a stretch because of how this chapter ends. It ends with the long view of Israel's history. It gets into what hasn't yet happened to this, even to this day. The Babylon of Revelation 18 is the final frontier and stronghold of lost humanity before the Son of God. It is, Revelation 18 is the final war with, concerning humanity. There's, there's, there's another one in, at the end of the millennial reign, but this age of, and stage of history. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Well, that hasn't happened, but it's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. And then you have the thousand-year kingdom age period where Satan is locked away. And then after about a thousand years, Satan will be freed again. And then he will be able to tempt people who have never faced his temptation. Those who, were, who came through before the tribulation, etc., the believers, we will not be subject to that. But those born in the millennial age, those who survived the great tribulation, they will. And there will be a lot of them. Death will be almost non-existent during that period of time. 
And so you can imagine the population ex- explosion. Well, God's still got to get to the bottom of, are these people going to be on his side or not through all eternity? And he's going to find out. And so they'll be living in a perfect environment, relatively perfect environment, almost like Eden. And then when Satan is loosed, a um, great many of them will side with Satan, and it will be instantly resolved. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and the former will pass away. And we won't even remember it, and I can't wait. But I've got it on my calendar. <laughs> I have an eternal calendar. Anyhow, uh, for this instrument of God... Cyrus was an instrument of God, but this instrument here, whom he loved, this is Messiah. That's the side I go with. That's what I believe against uh, apocalyptic Babylon. Let's look at Revelation 18.21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. And this is apocalyptic. This is the end of, of the age. It will be dealt with. The last frontier, the last uh, stronghold of God-resisting man. And so the one who God is saying he loves that is going to deal with this Babylon is Messiah. And that's what Isaiah is moving into. As he continues through this chapter, he's going to be more and more into the kingdom age and messianic period. And this, so let's look and, and see if we can button it up. Verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Now, your Bibles might have the personal pronouns all in lower case, indicating this is not a divine figure. I think that um, they're wrong, and I'm not alone. Uh, it's in the original Hebrew, it would not have, you know, you have to go with the context to know if the pronoun refers to deity or not uh, most of the time. So he defeats the final Babylon at his second coming and gives Israel her land, and it will be given without any fear of enemies. Now you say, well, how do you put this together? How do you know these, you know, well, this is, prophecy is a puzzle, but it can be put together. Puzzles can be put together. And I'm going to give you an example. Genesis 3.15. This is God dealing with Satan after he caused Adam and Eve to stumble into sin. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll take it from the bottom. You'll give him a slight wound, but he's going to kill you. That's ultimately what that means. But how would anybody know that this is the virgin birth before the virgin birth? See, as Scripture unfolds, you begin to see it. You say, this this is a no-brainer now. The woman doesn't have a seed. It's the man. What is the seed of the woman? It's the virgin birth. And almost all, probably all good Bible commentators hold that view. So you come to this section in Isaiah, he says, the one I love. And then you have a pastor say, well, I don't think that Cyrus is going to deliver them. I think he's now rolling into Messiah and he's moving away from ancient Babylon 
historical Babylon that Cyrus will be used against. And now he's talking about end time Babylon. And it's the same way we approach such verses as found in Genesis and get to the bottom of it. You look at the cross, you say, yep, the crucifixion was the bruising of the heel. But in the end, Satan is cast into uh, the lake of fire for all eternity. I would say that would count as a bruised head. Uh, A little euphemism there. So, um, I hope I did not confuse you with this. Uh, but to me, it's, it's very clear. Now, again, even Haley's Bible Handbook that I, I recommend. Haley thinks that it's Cyrus, but Haley is in heaven now, and he can't get his hands on me. I think he's wrong. Verse 16. Uh, I should add that not being able to understand a verse does not take away from the verse. It just means you don't understand it. The meaning is there. Verse 16, come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret. Have I not spoken in secret? Well, pardon me, too excited here. Come near to me, not you. Hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now, The Lord Yahweh and his spirit have sent me. You see how confusing that verse could be? Who's talking here? Is it Isaiah? Is it God? Then how come it ends up his spirit has sent me? Which is in upper casing. It's Messiah speaking now. This is how the prophets wrote. John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus, um, John saying this about Jesus. These things Isaiah said... When he saw his glory and spoke of him. John is saying, Isaiah saw Jesus. Where? Sitting on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah chapter 6. Yahweh is Christ. Christ is God. God the Son. The Holy Spirit and Christ, the sort of, uh, if I could put it like this, as light radiates from the sun, they have radiated from the throne. They have come in touch with humanity uh, in that form, in the form of the Holy Spirit, in the form of the Son, Jesus Christ. If God withheld those two, would we have any contact? What contact would be left? I think it's incredible, uh, in a good way, a believable way. Um, John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying I'm eternal. And so it's not, it's not a far-fetched understanding to say, hey, verse 16, where he says, come near to me. Who's speaking here? It's not Isaiah. It's from God. And it develops into, it's, hey, it's Messiah. Hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord Yahweh and his Spirit have sent me. This is the one that is loved, that was spoken of earlier. Uh, A remarkable glimpse into the triune Godhead at work. Verse 17, thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit who leads you by the way you should go. He is the Redeemer. I I love this verse, Titus chapter 2. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How does a Jehovah's Witness get around that? 
He lied to themselves. Who gave himself for us. Uh, Christ gave himself for us. The Father did not. The Son did uh, as Redeemer. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Purify us from every lawless deed. We have an advocate with the Father. Verse 18 Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And again, we look at Israel's history and we say they have not heeded his commandments. Verse 19, your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body, like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Um, They threw away peace through disobedience. And there's really not much to add to that, except they should have known better. The high price of the self-will is farewell to peace. Verse 20, go go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say... Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. See, that hasn't happened. This is why that first opening statement about the one he loves being used to deliver them from Babylon is farther reaching than Cyrus. This 20th verse is still unfulfilled. Uh, And we'll open up a little bit of it. Uh, Of course, he gets into the doctrine of separation here a little bit. But this is a global proclamation. It's not the 50,000 Jews returning to Israel from historic Babylon under Zerubbabel. This is global. Uh, And what's coming, he's going to talk about the deserts in, in, in a moment. That hasn't happened yet still. There's going to be a final Redemption of literal Israel. Romans 11.2 God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Romans 11.26 And so all Israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That surely hasn't happened yet. But this is where it belongs. At this time in history when Apocalyptic Babylon, that last frontier, is vanquished. Christ establishes his kingdom on earth. That's when these things will be. The one that the Father loves is the Messiah that is bringing this about. Verse 21, And they did not thirst when he he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. So, of course, he's pointing back to how God provided for his people in the days of Moses, and he's going to provide for them in the end. Verse 22, there is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. And so it's a, just a flat-out statement. Um, the wicked don't believe this, and yet they, are, they have so much unrest. But I think of um, some of the people on, murder, on death row for, for horrible crimes, for murders, etc., um, they have no peace unless they give their lives to Christ and receive forgiveness. Uh, but the Bible calls it like it is. Let, let's pray.
Our Father, you sure give us a lot of things to work on. And for that, we would do well to thank you. I'd rather spend my time searching through the scriptures uh, than a whole lot of other things in this life. Uh, May you get us all home safely. Pray in Jesus' name.